I wonder what words and phrases come to mind when you think of Jesus. So that's not a rhetorical question, that's a genuine I wonder, and that's the invitation for you to kind of, or especially you extroverts, to just spout out some words and phrases and images. The Redeemer. The Messiah. Living Saviour. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Justice. Justice. Light of the world. Love. Love. Wonderful counsellor and healer. Healer. Somebody talked over you twice and I missed it. (laughs) This Sunday is, well, some of the phrases we came up with could well fit into this. Others struggle a bit. Is Christ the King Sunday? So I wonder, when you think of Christ the King, what kind of images you come up with? Majesty. Majesty. And glory. And glory. Any others? Humility. Humility. Love and gentleness. Servant King. Humble. King on a donkey. King on a donkey. Right, just that was our sentence. Well, I, I wondered uh, if I googled Christ the King images, what I would come up with. So here's uh, some of the images that come up. And these are the ones, so these are in the, pretty much in the order they were on Google. So these are the ones that get the most hits. So we start off with this one, very regal. For all the uh, regal uh, paraphernalia, including one of these things. Uh, although this is flasher. Um, so we like to pretend that this is a symbol of the towel that Jesus wore at the Last Supper. But really, really, these were symbols of imperial power. These are what the emperor's representatives wore. Stoles. So here's another one. So that one's called Jesus the Tsar. Jesus the Caesar. That clearly comes from the Russian church. Oh, that's good. I so did not need that to happen just then. <laughs> ah. Oh, good. Now, as soon as I shut all that off, we can carry on. Go away. more regal images. Now the trouble with all of these images is they shape our understanding of who Christ is and who we are in response to that. Whether we like it or not, whether we even agree with those images, they shape in some ways how we see what church is all about and who we are as followers of Christ. There are some fantastic regal imperial pictures of the risen Christ, full of glory and majesty. And before too long, the church took on the trappings 
of these imperial pictures. So this is an example of one of the trappings right here. The church in the east and west adopted the same kind of structures and the same kind of processes that the Roman Empire adopted. That is called Christ the King, and it was pretty near the top. It's American modern art. I thought that represented some people's understandings as well, so I thought I'd just throw a little bit of light there. (laughs) Now the next question is, we're coming to the end of a year of Luke. A year where we have sat most Sundays with the Gospel of Luke, who has been addressing the question, who is Christ? That is the fundamental question that he was trying to answer for his community. So this time you're allowed to talk to your neighbours. Who would you, how would, how do you think Luke would answer the question, who is Christ the King? What kind of images would he use to answer that question? Who is Christ the King? What kind of stories would he use to answer that question? You've got about 30 seconds to talk to your neighbour. Should be easy. You've had a whole year listening to Luke, so it should be just fly off the top of your head. stories do you think Jesus, uh, Luke would have told to answer the question who is Christ the King? I don't, I don't think that Luke would even, I think those images have been built up by the Anglican and Catholic Church over the years. I don't think or the in, Orthodox in Church Luke's time it would, be, it would be, uh, he would be thinking along those. Right, that's a very good answer. Yep, okay. So that's not how Luke would understand it. So if, ever, if Luke even used the used phrase, which is debatable, but if he did have to use that phrase, what kind of story would he tell to describe the kingship of Christ? I think he would have said he is my friend. It's my friend, yep. A healer. A healer. Yep. Right. As amongst the people, not the monk. Right. He's a, he's a king who goes out to his people rather than the Texas people who come to him. Right. So, same kind of answers. Goes out to the people, not like our king or queen who lives on the other side of the world, but Jesus was out amongst the people, Marley. Um, he's a judge because he expects to find us doing what he the good people does. Indeed, although it's very interesting that if you read, the, read uh, the prophets, for example, they looked forward to judgment because judgment was when they were um, noticed for who the, the righteous were recognised and that the wicked would be punished, but their emphasis was on the recognition of those who were righteous rather than on punishment. 
Uh, so there's some clues here with some of these pictures. These are, these are a bit further down. And if you look carefully, you can see it more carefully here. There's a crown of thorns around the heart. So this is the sacred heart of the king. And the king has a crown of thorns around the heart. I mean, this one also has a proper crown, just to make sure we know. But no crown on this one. I think that if Luke was forced to answer the question, who is Christ the king, he would have told the story we heard this morning. That the kingship of Christ is found in the crucifixion. Not in all this other regal trappings. And so we have hints of that here. Now, so this is, a, this is a symbol of when we take all that imperial stuff and we co-opt it to understand who Christ is. And that is, like, we have done that for most of our history. And it is still implicit in much of what we do today, and it's very hard to shake. The, the reality is the crucifixion is enormously difficult for people to understand. Jews don't understand it. Muslims think it's just ridiculous that any king could be crucified. And I would have to say that most Christians really struggle to get their heads around it. It makes no sense. If our Messiah really is the Messiah, what is he doing on a cross? At Synod this year, it was, uh, Synod was on the weekend of Holy Cross Sunday... Uh, and so Jenny Dawson got us to get into groups and to talk about what the cross means for us. And I, would, I was a little surprised, but I do come from a strange position. I understand that being a Franciscan. But most people really didn't like the story of the cross. There was too much suffering, too much pain. Let's just move on quickly through to the resurrection, which is a much better story and actually fits with a lot of that regal stuff. We don't like this kind of image. Uh, others said, well, we can, we can celebrate the crucifixion because that's when our sins are forgiven, but we do it in a happy kind of way. Like we like to sing happy songs and clap along and thank Jesus for dying on the cross, kind of ignoring the brutality of it, as if the brutality of it was somehow not part of the story, not a necessary part of the story. But there are some people, including Luke and a whole lot of biblical scholars and a whole lot of, a whole lot of uh, theologians who would suggest that actually the crucifixion is at the heart of our story. And without the crucifixion, we have nothing. And one of those people is this guy here, Francis. Now, if you go to lots of churches in Europe and you look at the scenes of the crucifixion, especially those built after the 1200s, you will see... A little brown-robed figure in that, in that. If you go to St. Peter's Basilica, there is Francis in the crucifixion scene. Because the crucifixion was at the heart of his theology. It was who he understood Christ to be. The nativity stories and the crucifixion stories, those were the two main events for Francis. Now, why did he and other theologians say the crucifixion was so important? Well... St. Augustine of Hippo says that the whole Jesus story is about reminding us who we are. And who are we? We are made in the image of God. And what is our sin? What is the original sin? Not some moral wrong that we did before we were born. Our original sin was we forgot 
who we are. We forgot we were made in the image of God. We forgot what it means to live in that knowledge. And God tried all kinds of ways to remind us who we are. And in the end, Jesus came amongst us as the ultimate way to remind us. And in that story, we are given something and then he develops a whole psychology around how we think about the story of Jesus and we ponder that story and we develop new learnings which lead us to the truth that we are made in the image of God. We are made in love. We are held in love and we are invited into God in love. That's what this whole story is about. And then we are to live that out. Now for Augustine, Jesus' death on a cross was pivotal to that. But Augustine lived in a Roman world. Augustine knew what a cross meant. Because he'd seen them. They were Rome's way of stating their power. And of stating the only way of seeing the world is our way. If you died on a cross, that was Rome saying... This person and everything they believed in and everything you saw in them leads to death. It is meaningless. You are never to go that way. If you follow this person and their teachings, it will lead to your death. So Augustine knew that this Jesus who had spent so much of his ministry amongst the outcasts, removing the boundaries that people had placed there to declare those people as beyond God's love, had been made the ultimate outcast through this action. His life, everything he said, was declared meaningless. But then comes the resurrection. And in the resurrection, all of that is tipped on its head. In the resurrection, God says, this is the way to life. And everything Rome stands for and everything else that you pin your hopes on will not lead to life. God flips it around and says the one hanging on the cross is the way to life. That is where meaning is found. Not necessarily easy answers, but meaning. So what happens when you follow that way? Well, if we look at the life of Francis, he was the troubadour to the great king. He's known as that. He sang songs about the king all the time. You could not get anyone more focused on Jesus the king than Francis of Assisi. And he knew the only way to follow the king was to sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and to live amongst the poorest as a beggar. Because that's what Jesus asked him to do, and that's how Jesus lived. That's what it meant to follow Jesus the King. We have a Pope who is shaking the Catholic Church to the roots of its foundations because he is saying to follow Jesus the King crucified means to live out this faith amongst the poorest where he lived it out, in the slums of Buenos Aires. It changes the way you shape the world if you really take seriously Christ the King crucified. 
Well, this is the last Sunday of the church year, and we're about to start a new year, and we're about to get into Advent, and we're about to start the Gospel of Matthew, so we're into year A, if you're interested in that kind of stuff. And um, we've been in year C, if you're interested in that kind of stuff. But I wonder how we take all of this into Advent. We're about to get into a season of getting ready for Christmas. On Tuesday, we remembered in our church calendar Elizabeth of Hungary, who I talked about two months ago, not on her feast day, so that was very bad. And uh, Elizabeth of Hungary was, uh, as a four-year-old, was sent from Poland to Thuringia, uh, which is in Germany, and has lovely forests, I discovered, on my treadmill at the gym, where I walked through the forests of Thuringia. And... uh, She was betrothed to the eldest son there, Louis, and they got married when she was 15 and had three children. And she was deeply influenced by the first Franciscan friars that came up from Italy and who lived there. Now here's someone who had at her disposal all the trappings of being a queen. She could have done whatever she liked, but because she was influenced by these crazy Franciscans she decided that she would try to follow their example. Now, she could not give everything away because she was a queen, so she became a third-order Franciscan, and she lived a very simple life. She dressed simply. She wouldn't wear a crown, much to her mother-in-law's annoyance. Uh, She helped the servants with their jobs. She spent a lot of time setting up hospitals for orphans and, and, and for lepers and those who were sick. There's a wonderful story about how she was taking bread to the poor, which her mother-in-law had said she wasn't allowed to do. And when she got to the gates, all the bread had turned into roses. And then she got to where she was going and all the roses had turned back into bread. I'd never heard that story, but Pauline, who comes to our midweek service, told me that story. So she was quite a remarkable woman. And then the last part of her story is not so nice. So we won't dwell on the last part of her story. One of the things that she decided was that her wealthy lifestyle, she couldn't avoid that, she was, a, she was queen. But she could live it in a way that did not add as much as possible to the poverty of her subjects. And she discovered that some of the food they ate came from her, the estate of, of, the, of her husband's family, the royal estate. And that was good, the food was grown for them, the people were treated well. Uh, and so she was happy to eat that food. But some of the food was a, came as a result of a tax on the peasants. What little they had, they had to give a share of that to feed the royal family. And she quietly decided that she would not eat that food. She would not add to their poverty. She didn't make a big fuss of that. She didn't say to her husband, you shouldn't do this either. She simply decided that she would not eat that food. For every meal, she made sure she knew which food came from where, and she just ate what came from her estate. Now, when she died, her husband had died a few years earlier, her husband's family thought, good riddance, we are done with that woman. We will never have to hear her name again. But the people remembered her and she was very quickly recognised by the church and sainted they couldn't get away from her 
Now, her story kind of invites me to think about how I get rid of Christmas. How do I get rid of Christmas? How I get ready for. There's a few letters missing in that word. How I get ready for Christmas. How do I get ready for Christmas in a way that does not add to others' poverty? When I'm buying presents, do I make sure I know where those presents came from? Do I think about using fair trade? When I'm buying food for our Christmas dinners, do I buy fair trade food? When I'm buying chickens and such things, and I will buy chickens and such things, because I like meat, but do I make sure that those animals actually had the best life possible before they died? Or do I buy caged birds and caged pigs? Christmas is a chance for us to think about what it means to follow Christ the King crucified. How to live that out and how we engage in feasts like Christmas. And how we do that in a way that honours not the imperial pictures of Christ the King, but that picture on the wall. So let's just spend a moment talking to your neighbours about what I've just said, and I'll get ready for the next bit of our service. Mm -hmm.